Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. There's a couple things I want to talk about. I know you want to talk about a couple of things. What do you want to start with? I want to start with, we got up on Saturday morning, Yeah. Uh, each of us, yes. and went to our cousin's two-year-old's birthday party on Zoom. And let me tell you, I love my cousins. Yes. I love my cousin's two-year-old. Yeah, happy birthday. But that shit is so trash. <laughs> like, first of all, not only do two-year-olds not remember... <laughs> Or understand the significance of a birthday. Or a Zoom. Or Zoom. But to see a crowd of, I don't know, 11 people, 12 people on a TV screen that they're just like, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> they, they show very little care towards us. The conversation is no good. No. And then, and then to go around and be like, hey, everybody say happy birthday and like a special message to this kid who has no real connection to you because, again... He's a two-year-old and has the attention span of a fish. Well, I th- I think that that uh, I got it right. You got it right. Uh, yeah, I talked about the parents. I talked about the cake. <laughs> yeah. So like I, I think like cake. He understands I was like, that. Yeah. I was like, all right. Thank you so much for putting this together. And thanks way, for being a good. They cousin. live in Seattle. Yeah. So this was, you know, uh, noon for us, mm-hmm. nine o'clock for them, and they're eating. Well, he's cake eating for cake. breakfast. Yeah. Love it. I mean, the kid is doing it right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't care. No. Yeah, happy birthday to him. But yeah, I think birthday parties are dumb. Well, hold and on. I think, what? Jeff, your birthday's coming up. And guess who's going <laughs> to... Eat cake for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Guess who expects <laughs> lots of presents and lots of attention on my birthday, but everybody else's birthdays are very dumb, especially on Zoom. <laughs> Zoom is so... It's the worst. Well, it's the worst? It's it's such a bad experience. It's no fun. Like Shout I, out to everybody who joined us on our Patreon <laughs> team only yeah zoom but i mean like we we curated it well i think right (laughs) this is you just said it was the worst here's what happens i'm gonna say things and then when it comes back to me i'm going to immediately say well we did it right though oh got it okay yeah yeah. birthdays yeah everybody else's is trash but i'm gonna do it right oh got it got it it. terrible (laughs) yeah but when i do it it's okay jeff kid cuddy has a podcast coming out yeah kid cuddy you can't do a podcast without talking to us. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, what, a, what a stupid thing for me to say. One thing I want to talk about. Is Kid Cudi's podcast? Is not Kid Cudi's podcast. I don't yeah. even listen to his music. Damn. Oh, Eric, we're <laughs> not going to get invited on. Are you kidding me? Jeff. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, there were like two people who said, hey, Kid Cudi, you have to get It's the Real on. You're disappointing them. Jeff, I want to talk about. By the way, I would like to get in Kid Cudi's podcast. <laughs> it's, it's a positive thing. Like. He his his podcast. The whole thing is, hey, we have a we 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 don't start fights. We don't do viral moments. And I'm like, that's our whole bit. He stole our podcast. Yeah, like a waste of time with Kid Cudi. Fuck, damn man. Quarantine radio with Kid Cudi. Like that's our whole thing. <laughs> now we now we have no leg to stand on. I want, I want to talk about. Is it tonight's? I guess it's tonight's versus. Yeah. Okay. It's Jadakus. Mm-hmm. It's fabulous. Mm-hmm. It's New York. Mm-hmm. It's you know, uh, yeah, it's Funkmaster Flex, it's uh, DJ Camillo, mm-hmm. it's DJ Enough, mm-hmm. it's K Slay, it's Green Lantern, keep going. it's uh, Absolute, keep going, it's um, Cast One, keep going, it's uh, it's all it's all the heavy hitters, kid. yeah, Who Kid, it's it's a whole lineup. Of By the way, I didn't expect to do the Who Kid drop right there. New I was York just saying, whoo, and I was like, oh, classic records, mm-hmm. and um. The nice thing about being Jadakus's friend is that we can suggest records to him that he could play. And um, I'm going to be honest, mm-hmm. 
don't know how seriously he took us when we told him that he should start off first three songs. The Champ is Here, Made You Look Remix, and Run by Ghostface. You know what would be really good? What's up? Cha-Cha Slide. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Imagine he's like, hey, you want to know what? I'm not going to play my records. Doesn't even need to. Just drop that cha-cha slide. The Champ is Here, Mm -hmm. Made You Look Remix, Run, Mm -hmm. Two Guns Up. The Green Lantern version, like like the mixtape oh, version. Are you really gonna say your entire game plan? New York for him by Ja Rule. This isn't even your battle. Checkmate. Yeah. Imagine you you go from the the I'm record that it. caused yeah. the friction, his verse on the Ja Rule song New York, yeah. to his diss where mm-hmm. he destroys Fifty, mm-hmm. and then goes "fuck you" by the Locks. Yep. Times up. Then, then we can go into the R&B bag, right? We Belong Together remix, Mariah. Throwback remix, Ursher. Best of Me, the original version with Maya. Mm-hmm. Knock Yourself Out. Get At Me Dog Freestyle. It Ain't Hard to Tell, Hot 97 Freestyle. Money, Power, Respect by The Locks. Why? Banned from TV by Nori. Benjamins, mm-hmm. right? He ghost wrote Puffy's verse on that. Mm-hmm. And then here's where you and I disagree. Yeah. I think he should go back to back Benjamin's mm-hmm. verse. Which he wrote for Puffy. And Victory. Which he wrote for Puffy. 18 and 19. And then ended, of course, with We Gonna Make It. I think that you are a bad coach. Um, <laughs> Why? I that, because I think that to put two songs that he wrote for Puffy. Yeah. I think if we both agree that admitting that he has ghostwritten a verse for Puffy. Yeah. Is a huge deal. Yeah. But then to do two of them... They're two humongous records. They are two humongous records, but you diminish the impact by doing two of them. The I, impact is gotten by the first one. The second one is just like, oh, you're playing another song that you're not on. No, here's why I disagree. I think that that's the conventional way of thinking, where it's like, hey, I'm just going to like toss this one out too. But imagine you have two monsters, and everyone thinks that you're only going to use one monster, and then you hit them with the second roundhouse... I think that's a game changer, especially at the end, too, when it's just like, yo, everyone's like, oh, he could go this way, could go this way. And he's just like, oh, a lot of people don't know that I wrote Puff's verse on Victory. Boom. Knock it out the park. I also think that it should just be 14, not like 18 and 19. Like, I think that it should be. Oh, you think the songs should be placed somewhere in the middle, not towards the end? Yes. Why? Because I think that it's like you, it comes out of nowhere and it like he has his own final moments. Like to do it eighteen nineteen, I'm just like, eh. Like that seems too late for me. I by when I when I'm watching these things, I tune out by like seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and then come back for like twenty, I guess. Like mentally. I'm just like, just do it sooner and then hit him and then go back. Do you th- well, okay. There's an investment with Jadakiss. We are friends. This is somebody whose music you really do love. You know, like no disrespect to, you know, uh, Jonte Austin, but he may not have like 20 songs that you're like, yeah, no, I, I fuck with that song. I fuck with that song, right? Are you saying that you're going to tune out on 14 through 18 necessarily with Jadakiss too? Or would you be in there to be like, oh, I wasn't expecting that or I thought he would go with this or... Well, I'm saying don't make it about me. I'm saying make it about <laughs> everybody who's watching. You know, like I know that when I'm watching people who I don't have a personal investment with, then that is when I'm starting to tune out. I this do sounds have, just like 
<laughs> our cousin's son's second birthday. No, I was tuned out <laughs> as soon as that thing started. You had no investment. I had no investment. I was just like, oh You're my no god. No cake. I, ju- I like I tuned in and I was like, oh, I I tune I in. Know, I know what I've signed up for. Zoom out. Basically. I said Zune. Yeah, sponsored by Microsoft. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't think he's going to play either of those records, but All we'll right. see. You don't what? He, he might play. Think, he play. He might play one. Which one would you choose? If it's between Benjamins and Victory, because everyone's expecting Benjamins. Benjamins is the bigger record. Everybody, but Victory. Mm, it's the more powerful record. Victory is the better song. And by the way. The guys didn't even like Benjamins to begin with. All right, whatever. I hope he plays uh, Victory. That would make me happy. It'd be great. Yeah. And, and not play Benjamins? Yeah. I mean, I think he'll play... Yeah, All right. I don't know. You think about it. Yeah. You watch the battle. Yeah. And, and, we'll and tell back. us what you thought you would have done before <laughs> yeah. next week. Jeff, who's on the podcast today? On the podcast today is Big Boy. Yeah. And Sleepy Brown. What? Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. Just like when I was just telling you, hey... You know, only hit him with the one surprise. <laughs> Here we come with the one, two. We have Big Boy and Sleepy Brown who have a project that they're putting out together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a full album called The Big Sleepover. Big Sleepy Brown. Oh. The Big Sleepover. Got it. Uh, shout out to, uh, to Big and Sleepy. Big we've known for, God, a long time, like 10 years, something like that. Um, Sleepy Brown we've never spoken to. It's exciting to uh, cover a lot of Atlanta history with both of them. Found out. They are both originally from, not Atlanta, Savannah. So uh, shout out to the Savannah legends. <laughs> yeah. Big boy, Sleepy Brown, um, a lot of funk talk, a lot of uh, outcast talk. A lot of owl talk. A lot of animal talk, including a- <laughs> owls. Owls, sharks. sharks yeah. Dogs. Um, Bengal tigers, Joe yeah. Exotic. Okay, a lot of stuff to cover today. Uh, but before we get into it, Jeff, let's talk about Patreon. Oh, we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash it's the real. It is a way to keep this thing going. Yeah, if you if you want to contribute, if you want to feel like you are a partner in this, if you get excited every time a podcast downloads, every time you see a video of ours, every time you, you think of the name It's The Real, there is a way to do it. You go to patreon.com slash it's the real. There are rewards that go back to you for different levels of membership. Yeah, we've got t-shirts. Yes. We've got uh, Zoom calls that we do. Yeah. And by the way, let me tell you, our Zoom calls are good. (laughs) Maybe we'll have cake in there at at some point. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Uh, We are figuring this out week by week, day by day, moment by moment. We've got newsletters. I mean, like there's a a bunch of things that we do to make our contributors feel special and feel part of this. And and you know what? We feel special that you guys are involved as well. Uh, The Zoom call that we did today, we were seeing faces we knew, faces we did not know. A lot of faces we didn't know. It was exciting to be a part of uh, more regular Zooms, more cake, more life. Jeff, when do you want to get into it? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Strong Enough for a Man, but Made for a Woman, a.k.a. Selling Pits. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Firecrackers, a.k.a. Looking at Karen's LinkedIn. Yo, what's up? It's Big Boy, a.k.a. Daddy Fat Sacks, a.k.a. Yes, it's our favorite podcast to waste time when it's the real. Big boy! Clang, 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 Big, what's happening? Oh, man, not much tonight. Trying to get a tan. Oh, that sounds perfect. How's it working? It's working good. I'm glad it's Big, 
listen, we're, we're super excited for this project that you and Sleepy Brown have, The Big Sleepover. I know that you guys were, were shooting a music video. Uh, it looked like right by the Outcast mural in Lil Five Points. Is that right? Yep, yep, sure did. So we've been there. It's behind Wish, which is a, a dope store down there in Atlanta. And uh, shout out to Jonathan Mannion, who, who shot that portrait in the first place. Can you tell us what you remember about uh, Jonathan shooting that and what it means to have a mural? Like not just a billboard, but, but you know, something painted on the side of a wall that is so meaningful and, and permanent. And permanent in your city. Uh, man, it was definitely an honor. I, I got to first give a shout out to the artist, Jex. He did a magnificent job of bringing it to life, man. And, you know, uh, actually, the day that we shot the video was the first day that I saw it. Wow. It's, it's, it's monumental, man. It's like, you know, um, it's almost like the, the, the hood stone mountain. Growing up there, I'm, I'm sure you never could have even imagined your face that size on the on the side of a wall. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, you know, for somebody to, you know, pay homage, um, you know, while we were able to see it, that's 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 an amazing feat in itself, you know, but um, just the detail behind it and, and, and how it just looked so grand. I mean, they did a great job for it. And I mean, that's why we shot the Can't Sleep video over there, because it was like a dope location. Yeah. And what do you remember about the actual photo shoot with Jonathan? Um, I think. We were we did several shoots with him. I'm trying to remember which shoot that one came from. Um, I think it was around. I'm not, I'm not sure it was around Stankonia days. Maybe mm. I think around that time. So it might have been around the time of that album. Um, I just worked with Jonathan. Jonathan, you know, we come up with the concepts of, to you know whatever we want to capture at the moment, and he he always brings it to life. Like he shot. Um, uh, the album cover for Speaker Box was, you know, uh, went on to sell 15 million records. So <laughs> to, to make make the the actual visuals look like the music, what it was all about, you know, what I'm saying the different things from me sitting on top of all the speakers to, you know, bringing the cars out like Jonathan got a way of capturing things that's immortal. Yeah. Well, what was the first time you saw yourself like on a big screen or even like on a big billboard like do you remember that moment it had it had to be i guess for our first album southern playlist the face bought some billboards around atlanta when the album came out and just to see them all around atlanta just to see you know your face plastered above the city man that that is is no feeling like it man and can you talk about that time in Atlanta? Because obviously, like, LaFace was running everything, but but it was such a huge time for your city. You know, you're talking about uh, So So Deaf, and you're talking about, like, you know, uh, Deion Sanders. It just seemed like this hub for culture, and you guys are right at the center of it. Talk about Atlanta back in the in the mid to late 90s. Well, I mean, we actually, I, could, I know one fond memory is um, Freaknik. We were well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 we were, that was, our, our first album came out around Freaknik, so we were out passing out, uh, I don't know if you remember the snippet cassettes, right, so we had the snippet cassettes with like, um, we called it a player pack, it had like incense and dice and maybe a, a beer opener in it that we came out with <laughs> And I mean, to this day, like, you know, when I do autograph signings, fans bring that stuff up for me to sign to this day, like 20 some years later. Yeah, man. Was that easy to hand out at Freaknik, or were people more preoccupied with, I don't know, having sex in public? <laughs> 
No, because it was put this popping the tape right in, man. It was like, when is it coming? When is it coming? You know what I mean? It was a wild time because we were walking, you know, in the middle of the street in, in traffic. Like, we were real grassroots promoting our own music. And, you know, that's what, at the very beginning, like, we were, we had players ball out. But, you know, we, we didn't have the whole album Southern Playlist out at the time. So people knew us. But it was just like to see us just going from car to car. Like, here, y'all take this, take this, take that. Like, people had a lot of respect for us. Are you someone who holds on to a lot of those promo items? Do you have, like, old T-shirts? Do you have, like, things from music videos? Do you have oh, yeah. all the magazines, everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got all of it. I have, uh, Matter of fact, I got not even all, all the outfits from the video in a vault at my house. I also have every every rhyme that I've ever written to every song on every album. I have all my pads, you know what I mean? You're kidding. Um, yeah, the legal, I use the, the yellow long legal notepad. Yeah. I got them all the way back to Southern Playlist, man. Let's go back to the, the very, very beginning. Where are you originally from? Originally from Savannah, Georgia. I was born in Savannah, um, Beach Boy, and I moved to Atlanta when I was like five years old. And then I moved back to Savannah, like for middle school. And then I did one year in high school in Savannah. And moved to Atlanta with my aunt to babysit my little nephew cousin um, uh, uh, for my aunt for the summer. And she decided it was a good idea if I, you know, wanted to come up and kind of stay with them. And then that's when I went to Tri-Cities and met Dre. For those who don't know, what's the biggest difference between living in Atlanta and living in Savannah? Well, Savannah's like um, very slow motion. Um, it's a beach town. Um, I'm a beach boy. I grew up you know, on the water, uh, fishing and crabbing and, and hunting and stuff with my granddad. So it's like uh, real rural, you know what I mean? And so to move to the big city, um, it was a big change. But I mean, I mean, it was fast paced living, but I, I dug it a lot and met a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, moving to Atlanta, did you miss the nature and outdoors aspects that Savannah gave? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still go back, you know what I mean? Go back, get a beach house and go charter a boat and go fishing, deep sea fishing with my mom and my family and, um, you know, play a lot of spades down there, a lot of cookouts. So, you know, I kind of balance it out. Where did you get your driver's license? I got my driver's license in Atlanta. I learned to drive. My, my auntie had like a 1979 Buick Regal. Wow. Mm. And where we lived, the streets were so narrow. It was like <laughs> playing pole position. Uh, so I had to learn to drive in a big car. You know what I mean? But now, you know, I swing big, long Cadillacs. You know, I'm talking about long, no Cadillacs. <laughs> so now I pretty much drive anything. I don't want to skip too far ahead, but uh, Dre, when he first got money, he got a long car and just like fucked that thing up. He would, he would back <laughs> up into everything, right? Yeah, oh yeah, he couldn't drive over shit. He just got that <laughs> back in he, he bought this Cadillac, uh, a long Cadillac, man, baby blue uh, Cadillac, man. He was backing into everything, man, like uh, uh, poles at the liquor store, and, you know, uh, it was too big for him. So I, I think he switched to the the Land Cruiser after that. So at, at 16, when you're, when you're moving around town in your own car, what's on the stereo? Uh, a lot of Sade. Mm-hmm. As the Brothers, N.W.A., Tribe Called Quest, um, uh, a lot of soul music, man. Did you know Sleepy Brown while you were 16, 17 years old? Yes, that's that's we met. We met um, the whole Dungeon family like when we were in the 10th grade um, through a mutual friend. 
And from the 10th grade on to the 12th grade, we all lived into this house called the dungeon. So we moved from Dre's dad's house and out of my auntie's house into the dungeon with Rico Wade and, yep. and Sleepy Brown and everybody else. And so what did it mean to you to find out that Sleepy's father was in the band Brick? It's full circle because uh, his, his, Sleepy's family is also from Savannah. Like his his um, mom and my mom's auntie went to school together. Wow. So we never we never knew this. So it was like full circle, man. So when the Dungeon family first starts recording together, you guys are the low priority. Yeah, we were the, we were the new guys. Well, let me ask you this because there's so many people who are in a basement and there's only so many slots where you can record. And you guys are the new guys. So am I getting this right that you would go to a shed in the back of the house and collect your feelings? Like, am I getting that right? Yeah, so outside the dungeon, there's like a carport that's, you know, no car in there, but it's like a shed and it was like kind of rats in there and it was like a rocking chair in there. And so when it would be maybe 20 guys in the house and 10 in the dungeon, 10 upstairs, like for me, um, a lot of the first records I wrote not to the beat. I wrote them in, I mean, in my head and kind of wrote, uh, just wrote to my own bio rhythm. You know what I mean? And I would kind of tailor make them to fit certain songs. Real Jedi rap shit. Obviously, everybody knows, you know, that energy that, that Motown had and their snake pit. And, and there's a lot of people who can, you know, talk about the energy that, that, went on a baseline for Rockefeller Records. Can you talk about what working amongst all of these people, all these different types of artists, all these different types of voices at such a young age meant to not only you, but to the entire Dungeon family? Um, it was a collective, you know, like we all fed off of each other's energy. You know, um, I like to say like even the first Outcast album was a Dungeon family effort. You know what I mean? From having Goody Mob on there to Big Rube to the production by Organized Noise. It was like all hands on deck. You know, we were the first ones to secure the deal um, after parental advisory. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at the success of Players Ball, like it was like... Uh, we, were, we were like construction crew, everybody working to build that album, you know what I mean? So everybody put in and helped make that first Outcast album. And what kind of hours were you putting in at that time? Doing shit, days. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't hours, it was days. It was, like, it, was, it, was, it was nonstop, you know. we um First we were in the dungeon, and, you know, we were kind of, you know, cultivating beats and stuff. And then when we first, when they opened the budget, we moved into Boss Town Studios, which was Bobby Brown Studios at mm. the time. And it's now Stankonia, because I ended up buying it from Bobby Brown. Yep. Uh, so then we moved into Stankonia, uh, Stankonia and we kind of camped out for months, man. We, we went way over budget. <laughs> I'm talking about we went way over budget. <laughs> Like, like it wasn't nothing, you know what I mean? So we were sleeping <laughs> in the studio 24 hours a day, but we were being productive, so the label never stopped us. And that's how you, that's how you got Southern Playlist to Cadillac Music, that album. What was the first time uh, meeting Bobby Brown like? Um, The first time we met him, uh, it actually was, it was in passing. You know, we would go up. When we were in high school, you know, we kind of starstruck. We would like kind of catch the bus up there before we start recording. We catch the bus up there and kind of sit outside the studio and just wait to, to see if he walk in and be like, "Hey, man, we want to talk to you." And but we never saw him, you know what I mean? So when we had studio time booked, like he kind of whisk in and kind of whisk out, and we miss him all the time. 
but the time that we met him, met him was a few years after down the line. We had a show like uh, I forget it was like North Carolina or something, and this was um, uh, like a couple albums in, and we asked him like you know. Hey Bobby, what's going on with the studio? Because they had shut shut the studio down. He was like, "Hey man, y'all can have the studio, man. Yeah, <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all can have it, right?" So we got back to Atlanta, and we told our manager Blue. We said, "Hey man, Bobby said y'all can have we can have the studio." He's like, "Man, Bobby, Bobby probably was so fucked up, man. Was <laughs> fucked up, right?" So come to find out, the studio was in foreclosure, and we were in the process of securing our label deal with um uh. I think it was Electra uh, with, with Sylvia Rome. Yeah, and yeah. So our manager was such a genius in our in our deal for our label. He put in there that they had to buy us the studio. Wow! Wow! So they bought the studio for us, and we secured the label, uh, Quimini Records. Yeah. And, and we own it since then. Like so, I've been almost twenty years. That's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. See, what I'm saying that's how God works. Or how Bobby Brown works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to I want to know what what was your relationship like with people in Atlanta but who were outside of your camp? Like what was your relationship like with like 112? Um everybody we knew every, everybody knew everybody, you know, cuz we all kind of went to the same high schools and you know, everybody was kind of doing their own thing, so we would see each other at events and stuff like that. It was always all love with everybody. Would you stop by like different studios like Doppler and DARP and everywhere just to like, you know, hang out? No, because we were always working on something. If we were in the studio, if we was Doppler or Dark, we were kind of we were working on albums, you know what I mean? Before we owned Stankonia, we worked out of Doppler a lot. We did uh, a whole lot of equipment in there, you know what I mean? So um, different people would be in the building and might, might drop through or pop through or something like that. But yeah, if we was in the studio, we were in the studio, like not just flowing through. Well, tell me, how did you meet Puffy? Because he directs your first video. We met Puffy through uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing the, supposed to do the video for Players Ball, uh, LA was like, "We want Puffy to direct the video," because uh, you know Puffy Bad Boy was coming. They was up and coming at the same time we were, and we was just like, "Man, how the fuck we gonna let <laughs> we out niggas our video?" And but we knew he had, you know, Puffy had talent and vision and everything like that. He came down and. We knocked it out and it came out perfect. Did you immediately connect with Puff or was that something where you sort of need to feel each other out and just see what like that New York energy was like? Um, uh, we had to fill him out. You know, he was a little bit bossy and we wasn't really like, you know, <laughs> he was like he was like trying to tell us to do some shit, you know, do this, do that, and we were like, Okay, we don't we don't operate like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> but um i can remember something that was really what was really good though was when we were doing the scene in the club and he told drake he was like hey man take your shirt off you know what i'm saying take your shirt off we're gonna get some sex some shit going <laughs> and then he uh and actually the necklace that dre wearing is puffy necklace in the player's ball video yeah yeah if i can't recall if i'm calling then he shot the scene and then you know from there that was like okay Puff, that was a good idea what was the first music video that that really like uh sort of announced you guys as a bigger presence and and made you understand the power of a music video? Um, I think it was, a, I mean, shit, Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music was, 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 was crazy. Um, it, it was, it was, that shit was awesome. It was like the most quality video, the first quality video we did, um, 
with uh, uh, the the real sharp cameras and everything. And once we did that, all of our videos after that, we just we started co-directing. I feel like everybody always talks about how different the South was and how new the South was, and you guys got a lot of hate for that especially at the Source Awards, but what was your impression of the West Coast and East Coast at that time? Um, they were all about lyricism, the same thing we were. You know, we wanted to uh, be able to compete and to be known as lyricists. That was our main thing, you know, coming out of the dungeon, like to let the world know that the South had, you know, of course we had 8-Ball, MJG, Pimp C, Scarface was one of the best out of the South and we grew up on Luke and the two live crew. But as you know, as far as like rhyming, rhyming, just, you know, straight, just lyrical ability, we wanted to be the best. And um, we looked to like the West Coast and New York because we listened to everything, you know what I mean? And we wanted to be able to compete in those categories and we did. And that's how we won the Source Award for Best New Group because they couldn't deny it. And everybody remembers, obviously, you guys being on stage, and they remember what a moment that was. What happened after the show? Where'd you go? Um, I think we went back to the hotel, and we was kind of chopping it up. I don't know if we went to any after parties or anything, but we was just at the hotel. Like, we were, we were happy, but we were kind of, like, motivated at the same time because we was just like, the motherfuckers just booed us, you know what I mean? <laughs> and that pissed us off Yeah, after they did that. I struck a nerve, so it was like, okay, we showed y'all we were some of the best. Now we're gonna show y'all that we are the fucking best, and went and made ATLians. Oh, so you didn't have ATLians like ready to go? No, we, we went back home and started on it. You know, like um, uh, half that album was produced by me and Dre. A lot of people don't know that we produced a lot of our own records. You know what I mean? Because they were so busy focused on the MCing part of it. But if you go back and look at the credits. Uh, from Elevators and AT Aliens and Synthesizer and Miss Jackson and Bombs Over Baghdad and Hey uh, and The Way You Move. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we started producing right after Southern Playlistic. Like, we uh, signed a, um, a publishing deal with Chrysalis after the song mm -hmm. um, went number one. You know what I mean? And we got, like, you know, six bigger checks and we immediately, immediately went um, to the dealership. And then after we went to the dealership, we went to uh, Mars Music and bought beat machines and keyboards. And it was just like, how cool would it be for us to be able to create the soundscapes we rhyme over at the same time still um, being apprentices of, of organized noise. Yeah. And we would, bring, we would bring them beats and they were like, damn, that boy's getting good. <laughs> yeah, man. I know that like, um, you know, you're talking about how you guys were crafting a sound and craft, crafting like an experience and it was so, you know, your own but then at the same time, there's all these camps that are rising up and people are, are sort of sending beats everywhere. So like, you know, in the 90s, you didn't have like a beat from Timbaland and a beat from the Neptunes that you did, you know, until like the late 90s, uh, 2000s. So like, were you offered uh, those like super producer beats that you just like turned them down or was it just like it just never happened? We were just in a bubble, you know what I mean? It was like the whole thing was if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We were we were so good at doing what we were doing. Like, I mean, we, we, we considered ourselves super producers as well, you know what I mean? To make records like Bombs Over Bad Dad, who fucking with that? You yeah, know what I'm yeah. saying? So, like, um, when there were beat submissions, um, I think they came during the time of doing features. Like, you know, I did... Uh, uh, you did the Missy uh, one? 
Pop it, yep, Missy. I, I got on the Timberland beat. I got on the Kanye West beat with uh Poppin' Tags. With Jay Z, yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? So that's how I started, you know, fucking with outside producers. But everything else was pretty much in house. Well, I mean, like, how did the Missy feature happen? Because that was the first time you guys had actually gone outside the camp. What? Uh, I think the first time was might have been um, Young Bloods, eighty five, eighty five, eighty five. The song eighty five. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were just getting calls left and right. And I mean, I'm done. I'm done the songs with everybody. You know what I mean? I mean, was there a conversation between you and Dre? Like, I'm going to do this by myself. No, 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 no. It was just like, you know, they would come and sometimes they'd be like, you know, uh, both of y'all, y'all, both of y'all, both of y'all on it. And Dre was like, nah, I don't want to get on it. You know what I mean? I was like, well, I'm going to kill it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that, that does sound like both of you. Uh, can you yeah. take us? Can you take us through Poppin' Tags and and the order in which it was recorded and and what you thought going into it as opposed to how it ended up? Um, yeah, they sent it, and it was um, uh, Poppin' Tags. They sent the beat, and I was just like, okay. Um, they was like, okay, you could you finish it? You know what I mean? And at the time, it was like, um, I think it might have been Kanye West singing the hook. Um, a twist of verse on there and then it was like you can do whatever you want so i was like okay cool i'm gonna add killer mike and i'm gonna put a verse on there because me and killer mike was just paired up just doing shit at the time yeah and when, when they got it i was like okay i love this i'm gonna go ahead and lace it and it was just like really straight straight raw lyricism man it's just you know just going toe-to-toe with the best is is, is how you stay sharp yeah um when rosa parks came out and then you guys had that lawsuit because it was like you can't put her name in the title and then maybe like a decade later every single rapper had (laughs) someone's name in the title so it was like rick ross doing mc hammer and uh young thug doing danny Danny glover Glover. yeah yeah, and uh like everybody yeah Yeah. so like but how did that feel to be like we went through so much fucking money (laughs) to battle this so you like did, did you feel like I mean, this isn't like Uncle Luke, but like, did you feel like you had put a lot on the line to to make this thing happen? Yeah, I mean, because the song, you know, like a lot of our songs have double meanings, you know what I mean? And so it was symbolism and paying homage to to Rosa Parks and, and to the youngsters who didn't know who she was. It was our chance to, when we did interviews, explain who Rosa Parks was, because we like to teach through our music, too. So at first we took it, you know, like, man, why they fuck try to sue us? You know what I mean? But uh, we ended up doing like a concert in her, her hometown and some of her family members came out and it was like, yo, that's not our auntie. That is the attorneys. We're the, us, the family are not behind that. And so we didn't take a personal after that, but it still cost a couple million dollars. <laughs> Can you talk about what somebody like Leslie Braithwaite brings to the table as a mix engineer to work with you guys? Um. The, the engineer? Yeah. Oh, cool as hell, man. Like, all, all every engineer that we came came with, man, had really uh, sonically sound ears. You know what I mean? So we're we're very meticulous and perfectionist when it comes to music. And then Leslie was one of those people, too. Like, I mean, if the snare had too much crackle in it, you know what I mean? He'll, he'll trim it down. You know what I mean? Um, another engineer like that is John Fry, Alvin Space, Neil Pogue. Like, you know, it was all team efforts, like, and they were all in and excited about the music. One thing that makes the engineer great is when they love what they're working on, because they're just invested as you are. If we just jump ahead for a second and you think about now where everybody has a Pro Tools set up in their own house, 
Um, how does that change your recording process and, and how does it change your ears? Like, do you listen and you get comfortable with something and then let another person touch it? Or are you sort of like involved the whole time? No, I'm, I'm there from start to finish, you know. Um, I used to have a, a little setup in the bathroom where I would record scratch vocals and just ideas while I was at home. But now, um, if I'm in the studio, like, I, I record anytime I want to. That's why we bought Stankonia, and that's the luxury of having it, uh, having a 24-hour engineer on call that you trust. And, you know, we get it done. It's like a, a SEAL team, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> like we, 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 tar- we get a target. We know what we got to do. We go in and we finish. I mean, the hardest part is recording is is, is writing, you know, because after written so many songs, like I never want to sound like no song I've ever done. You know what I mean? It's got to be a reinvention every time. And so it's, it's challenging to me. Sometimes I go in there, it might take me a couple hours. Sometimes it might take me a couple of months to finish one verse. You know what I mean? So I kind of bounce around. What do you remember about the recording process with International Players Anthem? Um, I remember they sent it and, um, they was like, okay, we want to try to get on this remix. And it was like, okay, cool. And it was like, okay, um, I think Bun, Bun and Pimp C was already on there. And, um, Dre was like, okay, I'm gonna do my part. He did his part. But then I remember him, he was like, uh, shit, but I want to take the beat out of yeah. the end. And at first, I know Pimp C, them, at first was like, Man, we need that motherfucker to drop, man. That's a long time. He like, that's a long time, 3,000, man, for the beat not being in there, brother. Like, man, we need the motherfucking hump. Then, but Dre like, man, I, you know, I, I just want to just do it like this. And it turned out perfect. Everybody came to, you know, a mutual agreement. And it's one of the biggest collaborations ever. I mean, the last one with Pimp C, Outkast, and UGK, you can't beat that. Yeah, how about the music video shoot? <laughs> fucking a crazy as hell it was like 100 191 degrees in california i had on a motherfucking a velvet tuxedo with a velvet, a velvet big big two-inch butterfly bow tie straight stomp down pimping on them hoes um had alligator shoes on you know what i'm talking about it was a lot of reptiles in the building all the pimps came through wearing fur coats um i knew they were finna pass out all the first sticking to the pimps face um the girls ain't had on nothing. Uh, it was dope. It was dope. I want to read something that Dre told Rolling Stone and get your response. And um, it's really long, so bear with me. The best moment was when we won Album of the Year and Big Boy gave me a hug. The embrace lasted five, eight, nine, no, maybe 15 seconds. The Love Below was originally supposed to be a solo album. At the last minute, management and the record company said it wasn't a good time to do that, so Big Boy did Speaker Box. But I was taking so long to finish The Love Below that he wanted to release that as a solo album. A lot of people don't know the album almost wasn't made, so there were a lot of emotions in those seconds. So, what is your recollection of that moment or time? It was like, it's like being in heaven. It was like, you know... Um, we know what we went through to make those records and just the back and forth from the label that don't put this song out and I don't think this the right song and me and him just stand on the same page like sticking to our guns like no this this what we dropping we dropping this as long as me and my brother is on the same page which we always are then it works you know what I mean like we have to make them see the vision you know what I mean I, I remember when the label didn't want try to get me to talk him out of dropping uh, hey y'all 
the label wanted, wanted me to tell him, don't do that. Don't do that. That's career suicide. And I'm like, nah, we were, we were doing the photo shoot for the Vibe magazine and everybody from the management to the label was like, man, don't let them put that song out. And I was like, bro, I'm sticking with you. And from that point right there, man, we just rolled out. You know, Hey Ya was such a departure for you guys. And I've read that the first time that you heard it, you were in a car with Dre and Killer Mike and that Killer Mike almost ended up on the song and that would have been not a departure for you guys. So I want to know what was what was your first experience with that song like? It was crazy. It was it was it was it was real wild because when he played it, it was a shocker, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" I was like, "Man, this is is it's, it was something that you couldn't really explain, but you just knew it felt good." You know what I mean? And then once we did the video. And, you know, I played his manager in the video and I was on the set of the video. Um, I was like, I had another whole totally, totally different concept of the way you move with Brian Barber. That that night, I was supposed to shoot my video the next day. I, at that night, we changed the whole treatment and did the way you move a whole nother way. What was the original version? I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't even remember, but it wasn't it wasn't what we made it like, you know, so he inspired me to do something else. Well, and how does Sleepy become like your your partner in the way you move? Like, was that something you guys wrote it from the beginning and thought maybe somebody else would jump on? Or were you like, yo, let's really put Sleepy on and out there? Man, Sleepy has have done a lot of records together, you know, and. A lot of the times when I'm in the studio, he would just come by and kind of smoke and hang out and see what I was working on. And um, so he just so happened to be um, at a cookout at my house and I was just playing some some beats that I, we've been fucking with. And then I, the way you move came on, he started singing and he started singing the hook. And I was like, that's it. I was like, that's it. And the next day we went and recorded it, man. And it started bringing the horn players in, the guitar players. And, um I wrote my verse verses like in like shit, uh, like two days and finished the song. It was like, we got one. How about uh, the, the process of making a song like Margarita, which is which is very special to my brother and myself. Like, we love that record. Obviously, it has yeah. a lot of staying power and it was kind of ahead of its time. If you think about it, what do you remember yeah. about Margarita itself? Um, I just remember, you know. Everything was just being fire hot at the time. Like my ink pen was on fire. Um, I was just coming off of doing all these other records, and uh, uh, Sleepy was like, "I got a single with Pharrell, man, and, and Pharrell wants you to jump on it and go and put 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 a verse on here." And I was like, "Cool." He's like, "We're gonna shoot the video in Spain." <laughs> I was like, "Shit." <laughs> so I was like, "Well, I want to go to Spain." I was like, "Good." So I <laughs> gave it beat. I wrote it. And by the next couple of weeks, we we're, were in Palma de Mallorca, Spain, on a yacht uh, in some uh, aquamarine water with goddamn 30, 30 <laughs> Salma Heights and, and 41 J-Lo's. And it was, it was some player shit. We flew in that day, shot the video, and flew out. We weren't even there for 24 hours. Killed it. Man. Well, what's what's like when you're going overseas? Like, what's something that was always super important to have, like, on your rider or, like, just, like, in your bag? Um, You, you got to make sure. One thing you got to make sure when you're going overseas, you got your power converters. Because mm-hmm. it ain't nothing, ain't nothing worse than being in a hotel room and you can't charge but your phone, but you can't charge your radio. Um, and, and, and your clippers don't work. You might blow your clippers up <laughs> 
because the wattage just got down off because you're usually over there for like two weeks and, you, and your face start looking like uh real burly and shit like <laughs> real and you can't tighten your face up we done blew the power in so many hotels plugging too much shit up it's crazy power convert you gotta have your power converters what was your first time over there like uh first time over there was like a shocker you know um eating the food the food i think the first place we might have went was i, I want to say germany and the food like i'm a real finicky eater so that's the only time ever that i eat mcdonald's like i go over there and it's nothing but a fish filet and they got the old school apple pies <laughs> first apple pies and, and chicken nuggets so we'll be going eat mcdonald's like two or three times a day but then later on um, we got a chance, you know, after we, you know, got up there, we had to, was taking our own chef, so everything was okay. Yeah, I mean, like, when I went to Germany, I had some very seasonless uh, chicken over there, <laughs> which is a real bummer. No, nah, man. You should have gone little, to McDonald's and gotten the, the apple pie in the sleeve, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, nah, you don't want to be eating wiener snips or shit <laughs> Fucking bratwurst, all kind of shit. Big, we know how important... Uh, actual physical cds are to the south because you know people like to ride out and and put something in their in their stereo uh as as you know apple and other streaming services sort of phased that out how has that changed your listening experience when you ride around um it's it's it's, it's a lot easier i tell you that because i got like on my phone like maybe 12 or 13,000 songs. Like, I don't, I, I got a subscription to, to every streaming service, Tidal, Spotify, and Apple. But, um, like, a lot of my CDs before the whole Apple thing came in, I, I, I loaded them on my computer and put them in my library. So I own music. I still buy music. Yeah. Like, um, like if I hear a song I like, I should jam it and I buy it. I don't just add it to my playlist because I like to support artists who are out here making good music. You're the one. <laughs> yeah. 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 So my iTunes bill is about five thousand dollars a month <laughs> well, so what is what does radio mean to you like over the course of your career is there a certain dj who really like rocked with you guys like and meant a lot to you and what did it mean to come up to new york and you know sit down with you know whether it's like an angie martinez or a funk master flex or or somebody that really meant a lot uh outside of your city well, I'll tell you, one of the DJs that meant a lot and still do mean a lot, and, and I have to give him credit where credit is due, is a DJ named Greg Street in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. legend. He's been, a, he's, been a, he's been a supporter since the beginning, and if you don't know, he is the guy who came up with the idea of doing the double CD, the, doing the, the speaker box. For you guys, up. wow. Yes, he, he, came, he gave us that idea. He was like, let me tell you what y'all do. He's like, you should do one side you, one side Dre, put that piece together, and put it out and greg street gave us that idea at stankonia before we did it uh he told dre's mom about it first and then he came to us and we were just like hmm because we were both you know talking about doing solo records like the dre said love low supposed to be a solo record greg street gave us the idea to put them both together and package them as one and that bitch went diamond yeah but okay so that that seems like such a crazy idea at the time when you go to your label and you present that to them it was this was this arista at the time uh, it's still LaFace. Oh, LaFace. Okay, so when when you go to, to L.A. and you present that, what does he say to you? He was like, shit, do it. No. Oh. <laughs> he, he, just, he just wanted the music. He was like, that's, like, that's going to be more songs, the more the merrier. He was like, go for it, man. You know what I'm saying? And and it was a both. It, it was a good thing, too, so it would give people a chance to see what we sounded like if we did complete albums 
uh, apart from each other, you know what I'm saying? But still participate on each other's album, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, for me being on Roses to Dre producing, um, uh, uh, damn, what's the name of the guy? The Ghetto Music. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, and produced, he produced something else on the record as well. So, yeah, we, we still were brother and brother. We would play the songs for each other and be like, man, you know what I mean? Like, this is where it's at. Yeah, I mean, like, was there any chance of you hopping on any other songs of his and him hopping on any songs of yours? Like, were there, like, what what were the conversations like in terms of that? It was just like we were both working, trying to get it to where we wanted each project. So it was kind of hard to be like, okay, I want you on this, I want you on that, because we were both trying to respectively finish this, the, the whole thoughts and ideas of the songs we were working on at the time, you know? Yeah, so... Uh, you know, you and Sleepy have traveled the world together. You performed on just a million stages. You're one of the guys who just, you know, is is reliably at every single festival. Um, obviously, you guys are great collaborators, but what's one thing about Sleepy that makes him, uh, you know, not a great travel partner? Is he is he late to the airport? Uh, does he snore? Uh, does he like? <clears throat> does he prefer to eat like type, some type of food that you really do not like? What what do we need to know about Sleepy? Nah, Sleepy's like my he's my big brother, man. That's how it was a, a natural progression for us to even do a project together. Like, you know, we we're not only just you know uh, musicians and artists. Like, we're brothers. You know what I'm saying? That's like my big brother. Like, I learned a lot from him, and you know, um, just the motivation that he gives me when we're in the studio. Like, we push each other, and you know, from him coming out with me, starting to perform with me, we were on the tour bus, we were like, man, let's do an album, because we got all these songs together that we performed, but they're older records, let's do some new shit, a whole album full of new shit, and we was like, alright, cool, and boy, when we started working on it, man, that shit's, boy, it's, 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 I can't wait to give people the whole thing, man, we had a good time. Yeah, I bet, I mean, like, by the way, I, speaking of long collaborations, uh, you and your brother, your actual brother, you, um, you've been breeding dogs, for the past 20 some odd years pit bulls yeah and yeah there's there's a couple of things that i love about your instagram presence which are that you you do uh show off your your pit bulls but also the owls oh my god on twitter on twitter yeah. and, and on instagram like how did owls come into your life um my my assistant her name is shay she's a bird lover and she had some macaws. And for her birthday a couple of years ago, I bought her a uh, 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 scarlet macaw. And I was just like, she was like, you should get a bird. I was like, if I get a bird, I'm going to get me a damn owl. She was like, she's like, I can get you an owl. I was like, word. And she was like, the next week, she was like, I found two of them. And I was like, oh, shit. So I was like, okay, let me just check it out. Let me see. And so for her next birthday, I bought two owls. I bought one for her and one for me. And um, they're like the best pets ever. Like, you know, they kind of just sit there and perch and very mystic, man. Like real cool, chill, chill, chill um, um, birds. I love animals, period. Um, I wanted to get a tiger to I seen Tiger King and was like, you know, I didn't want something that could kill me. <laughs> and at the pit bull size, it was like they can take your hand. So yeah. I was like, fuck it. So I ended up getting me a, a Bengal tiger, a Zyda Bengal tiger. So I got two of those. You're kidding so, me. You have two Bengal yeah, tigers? Two 
Yeah, yeah, not the big ones, but the, the exotic cats. Like, I, I bought one for my wife, and I just bought a baby during quarantine, my quarantine cat. Oh, my God. Um, he's a snow bingle, yeah. Had, had you ever crossed paths with Joe Exotic? No, never heard. After he was in jail. I don't know what the fuck going on. What about Carol Baskin? <laughs> Free Joe Exotic, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, big, uh, quarantine's been just, like crazy for everybody i think we're like in the fourth month or something it's it's hard to keep track of time uh but it's it's interesting for adults but certainly uh, a game changer for kids who have just graduated high school or maybe went through a year of college when you talk about your son and you think about uh you know his career in playing college athletics he's a football player uh how does this whole thing affect him for his age and and what's his sort of outlook as we move forward well, actually, um, to be honest, I'm out here in Eugene, Oregon now. I had to, he had to report back Sunday for um, training. Yeah. And so uh, they're getting it together, man. Like they're they're, they're moving along with it. Um, of course, he had to get uh, tested. I went go take him to go get a blood test for the antibodies and yep, stuff. Yep. And um, then he'll be able to do like you know um, on the facility activities. I think he has to do like the nasal swab test tomorrow. So I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. And we came out to support him because he had to quarantine for like seven days. So me and my wife were out here for the next uh, four or five days just to make sure he's straight. But he was excited to get back. His girlfriend's out here. His car's out here. <laughs> he, missed, he missed his teammates. So, you know, as long as the kid's happy, we happy. Yeah, I mean, well, what about for you for – what was that, that plane ride like? Because, like, I'm, I'm terrified to take a plane right now. I, I, was, I was too, but then I was just like, you know – um, I got a strong faith, you know what I mean? So when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. Um, I, I fell asleep on the plane and woke up and my mask was on the float. Um, <laughs> so I was like, shit, fuck it. You know what I mean? I'm out here winged it, but I'm, you know, I build my immune system up with black seed oil, emergency, um, taking zinc, um, uh, elderberry, mullinin. I take a lot of stuff. So like, I don't eat beef or pork. So I have a pretty clean diet and I, I've been taking you know, supplements for years, uh, more so that my doctor told me to cut back on my vitamins because I was, my vitamin B levels was through the roof. And um, so, yeah, you got to protect yourself like that, man. But it's no fear. No fucking fear. Yeah, I Fuck feel like that. I'm talking to Styles P right now. <laughs> no fucking fear. Your son is getting ready for, for uh, you know, training right now. Uh, yep. What excites you about about his college football career right now, having watched him, obviously, all of his life, but but living out his dream? Um, the most gangster part about it is he just, he's just going to his sophomore year, so, but his freshman year, the Oregon Ducks won the Pac-12 championship, and they won the Rose Bowl. Yeah. So he got two big-ass rings. And the next step from the Rose Bowl is the Super Bowl. So yeah. he's done all. He can retire if he wanted to. He's already, <laughs> he's, already, he's already done it. You know what I mean? So he's looking forward to being a businessman. And, you know, he wants to play football. But life is bigger than just sports. And, I mean, he's achieved all of that. He has the accolades already. And right now, as long as he's happy and he's healthy and um, he's living a productive life, I'm, I'm going to protect him with my life forever. Yeah. Yeah. What about your other son? What is he up to? Um, he is right now. He is living the Ferris Bueller Macaulay <laughs> dream. He is at home at, at the house. He's house sitting with. He has his girlfriend who has been living with us since quarantine because her mom is in Africa. Wow. So he's been having he's been having in house pussy for three months. <laughs> 
Wait, is is he also taking care of all the animals while you're gone? Yeah, yes, he is. Hey, he's sending me videos every day. He's doing <laughs> my cat food yesterday. So he's in the kitchen cooking. He got his girlfriend there. And I wish I was him right now. Big, when you take care of the animals yourself, or if you're just like chilling on a on a regular weeknight, and you get to some place after you smoked a whole bunch of weed, where you're connecting with the animal on a different level, have you had strange experiences in in looking at an animal? Uh, just all the time. <laughs> you, can't you, you can't look an owl in the eye too long after you smoke four four joints. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not gonna happen. But I know one thing: if I'm chilling with the kitten, the cat, like if I, if I smoke, everybody lay down. You feel me? <laughs> so everybody know when it's time to go to sleep. Yo, what? Which animal has the best energy for when you're high? Uh, my kitten, because he has energy like a tiger. Uh, he it don't matter what's going on. He's jumping on my shoulders and he want to play catch and all kind of shit. You know what I mean? So. Him and I have two Rottweilers, like 160-pound Rottweilers that live in the house. So they're they're like when when I smoke, they definitely get away from us. They don't like to smoke. Wait, <laughs> do you still have sharks? I do not have sharks. I have triggers now. Like um, I have a queen trigger that's about 12 inches long, and a bunch of other different um, eels inside the tank. And I, I've lost probably maybe couple thousand dollars worth of fish because if you look up a queen trigger they're the most aggressive out of the trigger family the bitch kill everything that come in the tank so i'll just throw them throwing money away wait so did you find this out like the hard way yeah because I, I like to call myself uh the owner of a gladiator tank survival of the fit oh my god so I, I, I that's how i don't have the shark anymore because I, I had the shark in there and then i had this nassau grouper and the grouper ran the shark out the back of the tank i was out of town and i guess you know he didn't make it Wow. What, what is the worst investment that you've had over the years? The worst investment? Um, I think it might have been I went in and I owned a restaurant on South Beach um, with a couple of Atlanta Falcons players and Lil John. We all, it was sexy. It was dope. It's a motherfucker, but it was a money pit. And we had it for about a year. <laughs> It was right on Ocean Drive, and I was like, okay, restaurant business, nah, not like that. <laughs> well, listen, uh, big boy, it's always a pleasure to to speak with you. Always a pleasure to hear the music that you put out. Shouts to you. Shouts to Sleepy Brown. Um, yeah. The big sleepover is what we're looking forward to. And uh, listen, shout out to your owls. Shout out yeah. to your Bengal tigers. And shout out, yeah. most importantly, to the Oregon motherfucking ducks. Yeah, go <laughs> Yo, Big, take care of yourself. Uh, love to you and yours, and uh, we'll talk to you down the line. Always a pleasure. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. American Academy of Pediatrics Recommendation, a.k.a. Back to the Crib. Yo, what up? It's Chef, a.k.a. Taking L's in the House, a.k.a. Maya Campbell. Yo, a.k.a. This Brown, AKA, Mr. Smoke a lot. AKA, I'm always talking. AKA, all that smoke. AKA, huh? <laughs> yes, yeah, your third favorite podcast to waste time with is the real. <laughs> Sleepy, what's happening? What up? Uh, chilling, man. Just, uh, you know, moving and grooving. Yeah, well, we find you down in Atlanta, Georgia today, one of the places particularly hard hit by COVID 19, and your governor has had a, a strange response to it. But uh, what is the temperature like down there? What's the mood like down there? And and how are you moving around? 
Uh, actually, I'm not moving around too much. I'm um, I'm mostly at home working on music. Uh, but if I am going somewhere, I'm definitely masked. You know, got my mask on, got my gloves on, so um, I'm keeping careful with it. But you know, it's it's, it's hot in Atlanta. It's cool. You know, it's it's always hot in the A. Yeah. And uh, you know, everything's good. But you know, what I'm saying, you know, I wish you know my people would take it a little more seriously with this uh, virus. You know what I mean? Because they, you know, we we out here partying. Yeah, for real. Um, you are so much a part of the Atlanta music fabric, but you're originally from Savannah, as is Big Boy. What's, you know, in the water out there? And and for someone who is the son of a famous funk musician like you are, how does that raise you musically? Um, well, yeah, I was born in Savannah, and uh, actually my dad moved um, me and my mom to Atlanta when I was like four. So I, I grew up in the A. Um, but I always went back to Savannah in the summers to spend time with my grandmother, which my grandmother taught me um, how to play piano and, and organ. She would put the letters on a um, little piece of cardboard across the, you know, um, cardboard across the keyboard. And, you know, I would just, you know, go down and mess around with it. So, you know, growing up in Atlanta uh, was mainly like my thing, you know, uh, with my dad blowing up then, you know, and me being at all the concerts in Atlanta, it was a great thing. What a what a amazing and and singular way to grow up as a as a child, you know, to be on tour and watching your father lead one of the great funk bands. I wonder if if there's anybody out there amongst your friends growing up who who could relate to that type of experience and and how that shaped your childhood. Oh man, I, I you know I was blessed. I, um... I had a chance to like grow up on the side of the stage. Um, actually, uh, Jermaine Dupree's father, Michael Malden, was my dad and uh, road manager. So me, you know, me and him kind of grew up backstage at all the funk concerts and stuff like that. So you know, oh, that wow. was crazy. School, you know what I mean? Yeah, I had a chance to see you know Confunction, Barcades, uh, Parliament. Uh, I mean, everybody, Earth, Wind, Fire. You know, you name it. I definitely saw them in concert, and uh, it, you know, it was a learning experience for me. When, when when did you realize that you first were a musical talent? You know, like we know we know you grew up in a musical family, but like when did you yourself realize that you were a musical talent? Um, I was actually staying with my dad, and uh, he used to bring a uh, keyboard and this drum machine home. And uh, one night, I uh, I kind of just challenged myself. I was like, you know, my favorite song at the time was um, Between the Seas by the Adler Brothers. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I told myself, if I could sit here and, and replay this whole record, I could produce. It's just how I felt. So I sat down and did the whole thing and was so proud of myself. I ran upstairs and told Dad to come downstairs and listen to it. So I think that was the moment when I was, I was like, I was 18. That was the moment, you know, I knew I truly wanted to, you know, really jump into music. Yeah, and like, where were what was your musical passion like even before then? Like, you hadn't you hadn't been on stage or anything. Like, had you been in any um, talent shows? Well, when I was very little, like when I was like you know like seven, you know, growing up or whatever, you know, I was like the the six Jackson. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I was in love with the Jackson Five, the Jacksons, whatever it was. So that was my early years. I always wanted to be one of them. <laughs> so, but in high school, you know, I was in this, uh, in Atlanta, we had this dance style 
called Yeek. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it was it came from uh, skating, the um, style of skating in Atlanta. So you know, for for me, that was like the popular thing to do. You know what I'm saying? You if you if you could dance in high school, you know, you would, you know, excuse my language. Can I curse? Yeah, yeah of, course. of course. Yeah. Okay, you was the shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like a high energy dance. Yeah, no, like that's no. like a lot of like moving back and forth. Like you know, legs high, arms really high. Oh yeah, it's 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 a whole production, man. We used to like. I remember one time we came out. And all these ninja suits, and we crawled up <laughs> under uh, bleachers, and we came out to uh, Chinese arithmetic by Eric B. Rakim. Yeah. And then when we we did that, so it, it we would break the we were dancing fast, and then break the song down with a slow record, and just started like it was just a mess. I mean, it was something else. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my, well, my so early if, days. If if Eric B. and Rakim and that whole New York sound were what was like running, you know, hip hop at that point. Who were some of the local acts that you guys looked to and and thought maybe Atlanta could be like the next place up? Uh, well, you know, around my time we had Shadi, you know, what I'm saying, which is my a real good friend, uh, DJ Tompi. Uh, yeah, produced a lot of stuff with T.I. He, um, he 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 started out with him, you know. So Shadi for us in Atlanta was that dude and uh, D Rock. We had D Rock. We had uh, Cool Ace. Well, yeah, um, man, I can, you, you, you put me on the spot. I can't think <laughs> my name right now. <laughs> by the end of high school, by the time you're 18 and, and you're thinking of that next step, was there any thought that you would like go to school outside of town, that you might get a job in something outside music? Or were you always in that mindset where you're like, I'm a musician and that's how I'm going to make my living? Yes, I, I've always stuck by, you know, this is what I want to do. You know what I mean? Like it did because I remember like my grandma was um told me before she passed that like one time she was um we had a concert and it was my first time seeing my dad. I think I was like six and that's that's when um dads was just jumping. So this is my first time seeing him do this and she said when when we got on stage, she said I turned around and looked at her and said, This is what I'm gonna do. <laughs> I'm gonna do exactly what dad you know. So it's always been that way for me. It's like, you know, my dad has always been my mentor. And, and you know, I just felt like I had to keep that brown name going. Yeah, you know for what sure. I mean? So, so I felt obligated that I had to do this. You know what I'm saying? But I wanted it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like I was forced into it. I wanted it. So I've always had the mind frame of, you know, I'm, I do music. I just walk around with a little um, Casio keyboard and a Lisa's drum machine in my book bag. Like, I was totally serious, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and also you you sound so much like your father. And so was that something that you had to work toward or was that just like a natural thing? That was kind of like a, a gift he gave to me. So that was a natural thing, you know what I mean? Um, it, it was funny because I, I never was really, I mean, I, I, I was saying falsetto sometimes, but I never really took it serious until Ray and Rico were like, you know, why don't you go in there and try to, you know, do it like Curtis? And I was like, all right. So it worked so well that, you know, it was kind of like, okay, do this song like that. Do this song like that. You know what I mean? So it it, it kind of grew into that style. Yeah. I mean, like, skipping a little bit ahead, what was it like actually working with Curtis Mayfield? Oh, man, that was so incredible because, first of all, I'm nervous. I'm sitting there like, oh, my <laughs> God. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what he, you know, how he really felt about um, me doing a player's ball and singing it like that. You know what I mean? He never really said anything. So. We were sitting in the studio, 
And I'm sitting, I'm nervous and everything. We're getting ready to start. And before we start, he was like, uh, Sleepy, I'm going to tell you, I really like what you did on that player's ball. You should keep doing it. Wow. I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, like, so that, that's my, I, you know, I have to say this. I've, I've had great moments in music where, you know, I, I remember one time we were going to do um, the uh, the Grammys and we were doing um, The Way You Move. We had uh, George and Earth, Wind & Fire, everybody yeah. with us. And, and George walked up to me, man, and he put his hand on my head. And he kind of said something. Like, he was blessing me with the phone. Wow. And he was letting me know. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, That's I've incredible. Had those kind of moments. And yeah, yeah. So that moment with Curtis was insane. Man, I had the biggest smile on my face. I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, bet. that's amazing. What was their relationship like with your father? Uh, like Curtis and them? Yeah, or or George or any of them. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was, yeah, yeah. It was nothing but respect. You know what I'm saying? When they, if they knew that, uh, you know, who my father was, they were like, oh, man, your dad, wow. Man, your dad's insane. I see where it come from. They, they, they would, you know, immediately say that, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> he, had, he had much respect in the industry. Well, yeah, I, I only ask because, like, now that, people listening to this now like we're living in such a, a connected world where everybody is able to uh you know see somebody at the click of a button you can you can you know understand someone's reputation very quickly you know look at their wikipedia page but yeah. back then you're in a very disconnected society you know there there are camps that are in atlanta there are camps that are in oakland and it's it's a it's a country in between those places and unless you see each other on tour or unless you see each other i guess at award shows even though there weren't really award shows for funk music back then you know like how often are you interacting and so you just have you just know one another by reputation right right you're absolutely right you know i remember um you know, for my dad and them, all they had was, you know, Soul Train and um, and um, American Bandstand. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then, you know, those were like the main two that, you know, I would catch them on, you know what I'm saying? Then, you know, and I, and I, and I you know, we first started out, we had a couple of, you know, BT kind of really, you know, was the main hub. But, sure. you know, it's like we had more of more um, visuals as, as, you know, we grew in in music and his music group. Sleepy, obviously you went and, and saw, uh, you know, your dad perform a lot. You were on the side of the stage seeing him, uh, you know, in front of crowds. Would you ever find yourself in the studio while Brick was recording? Um, the only time, well, we, we actually did something together. We, we worked a little bit on a couple of things. Um, and that was the first time that I think we, we honestly worked together. You know what I mean? Cause I, I had a record that they were gonna come out with, um, but that, you know, it never worked out as far as with the label, I guess, that they would, whatever. But um, we worked together, and that was the first time, you know, that we actually, I was actually with, in there with them, you know what I mean, with Reggie, Ray, Eddie. It, yeah. was, it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, I, I, I asked because I'm curious as to how you, in your early 20s, as part of the Dungeon family in that basement, approached recording as opposed to what quote-unquote professionals would do and, and what you saw your father and Brick do when they were in a studio. Um, Honestly, man, with, 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 with the Dungeon family, that was just kind of like one big vibe, you know what I mean? As far as us, man, we just, we, we, we just kind of took it day by day and just did what we love. We just worked on music and smoked weed. That's all we did. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like anything technical to it until we started going to um, 
the Coca or to um, Doppler Studios or Boss Town anytime. You know, now that was an exciting time because, you know, we used to look forward to going to the studio because maybe we could, some, you know, some of us could sleep on the floor and, uh, you know what I'm saying? It was like going out of town or something. You know, we looked at it like that. It was fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Working on your first album and everybody in the vibe and it's, and it's going right and it's, you know, I mean, man, I, I wish I could um, experience that again. Well, what what is it like going to a Doppler for the first time and and sitting behind an SSL board and and really like you know tinkering and and expanding your mind? Man, uh, scary and fun. Very, you know what I'm saying? Because you don't want to touch nothing, mess nothing up. So. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to touch nothing, but you know what I'm saying. Being there is like incredible, man. You get that vibe, you walk in, and like, cause like back then it was more like the real, the reals, and you know what I'm saying. And it had you like when you walked in the studio, it had that certain smell to it. It was like wood, wood, and I don't know leather or something. It was crazy. <laughs> Funk, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and incense. You know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. So you know, uh, my first time really going to the studio, like going into like a studio like Doppler was was amazing, man. You know, and actually that was when um I went to uh go hang out with L.A. Reid, and they were doing a Boomerang at the time. They were working on a Boomerang album. Wow. Yeah. So what was your first big placement that, uh, you know, was heard on the radio that took Atlanta by storm and, and ultimately, you know, grew to be something nationwide? Mm. Wow. I might have to say play with ball, but really and truthfully for me, so fresh, so clean. That's when... You know, it just, it really jumped, you know what I mean? Um, as far as from what I was feeling from it. But yeah, I think for you, like, there's got to be such a difference in having your name and face on a record for So Fresh, So Clean, as opposed to Player's Ball, where it's just like, you, you know that that's your voice. But like, you know that's your voice, yeah. as opposed yeah. to like the country or, or the world. Like, so talk about what it was like to for players ball to be so popular, but for it to be like, well, I'm here too. Like that, 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 that is me. I'm the guy. Right. Well, I mean, you know, at the time, you know, it was really more about outcast than about me. And I wasn't in the group, you know what I mean? So they were the main focus, you know what I'm saying? So I had to, you know, sit back and just kind of chill. And, you know, I've always been that third member of outcast, the quiet silent, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that, you know, he over though, but, you didn't know he was over there. You know yeah. what I mean? And was like so fresh, so clean. Finally, let me step step out because you know I got in the video. Like I went in the video singing a hook on on a uh, player's ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so fresh, so fresh, so clean was the one that you know you finally get to see the guy that's singing the hook. Well, when you think about the entire Outcast catalog, what's one song or moment that you can really like feel proud of? You're like, yo. That was the little bit of like magic that I gave to that song, and maybe it's like a tiny little, you know, the way a snare sounds, or maybe it's a chord that still resonates with you, or or what's one moment of an Outcast song that that just lives in your heart through today? Wow, the hell of a question, bro. Um, <laughs> well, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say even though it really wasn't an outcast record, but I can't wait because um, like 
that was the ultimate record that I always felt like I wanted to do as far as that new sexy ass sound. You know what I mean? It's just it set right. You know, it sound like it sound like like dinner and candles. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so you know that record really. I mean, it's so many of them, man. I I, I can't really just sit here and just my favorite. I think Outkast record um, production wise, either you know by Dre or by uh, Big or whatever. Was um, Bongo Bad Day? I thought that was insane. I mean, you yes, know, insane yes. is the right word. Yeah, yes. yeah, because it was you know they went to the whole rave thing that night and you know heard drum and bass. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of where that whole vibe came from from drum and bass. So, but it ended up being like you know some New Planet Rock. You know, you know what yeah. Like? Um, who was the first camp outside of Atlanta to be a fan of yours? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. You know, I mean, we were we, we were kind of, uh, well, I mean, maybe I was. I was kind of happy when I heard Dr. Dre from Stillman. That's really hard. Mm. How'd you, how did you find that out? Yeah. Corrupt. Oh, really? Corrupt told us. Yeah, because, you know, Corrupt, uh, we, did a, we did an album for, on, a, on a Corrupt. Him and his brother, and uh, Bosco, and... Uh, yeah, he's a he he's definitely a, a dungeon family brother. So when he was over chilling with us, man, he told us he was like, Yeah, man, he said he like Drake's to play y'all all the time. Like Drake love y'all was like, What? Wow. You know what I mean? So that was that was pretty dope. Yeah, I mean also Jay Z was sampling Outcast for his second and third albums. So how how did you find out that he was a fan? Was he just through that? Uh, well, you know, the funny thing is, I remember when I was working with Pharrell, and uh, him and Jay Z had did a record, man. That sound, it's for a minute. It sounded so much like what I was vibe to, or what Cash was vibe to. Is that excuse me? Mm. Hmm. Like, and I said, Pharrell, man, why you ain't uh, call me on that record? I said, <laughs> that record was so dope. You know, he was like, well, you know, bro. I mean, you know, well, I can't really, say, I ain't gonna really, you know, start on, you know, say anything about what they were talking about, or whatever, but. You know that our vibe was definitely a part of his thing. He was, you know, I, I believe he wanted to do like his own outcast sound. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Into that cool shit. Well, and then people really wanted that that specific organized noise sound, like a Bubba Sparks or a Ludacris. Talk about working with them. Um, uh, Bubba, Bubba was real, uh, real cool guy, man. And and you know he he was willing to listen to me in and and um. We kind of worked on that song together, you know what I'm saying? We really um, became good friends and, and really tried to figure out his sound and everything. Bubba was a was, um, really good guy. So was Ludacris. Um, Ludacris is a very talented brother, man. He knew exactly what he wanted. And uh, every time we went to the studio, it would just be a real quick vibe. It would never, like, take an hour. It would be, like, right right on it, right, right spot, like, boom. Because when you walk in, we just get that vibe going, so... Working with both of them was really, really dope. And they always came to us and showed us love. You know what I mean? Even when other artists or other, you know, when music was different and people didn't really want to, you know, go over to what we were doing, they always came and be like, yo, I need a record from y'all. You know what I'm saying? So I love Luda for that and I love Bubba for that. And when it comes to your partnership with Big, what is it that really connects you guys? Is it like, you know, something about both you guys being originally from Savannah, is it something about that time down in the dungeon where you guys just connected, or or is it like something even beyond that we can't even imagine? 
Um, it's kind of all of us, man. Uh, our first, I, I remember the night that we really vibed out and kind of, you know, kind of felt like we were going to probably, we, we knew we were going to be working together. Um, we were just um, on our first album called Claim and True. And uh, everybody, when nobody in the studio, and it was just me and him. And uh, Rico was going to come by later. But we, when we wrote, when we kind of came up with that hook and we vibed out together, I knew and I, I, I could feel that he knew that we had some, you know what I'm saying? Had this, like that kind of strong connection like that because, you know, I didn't know he was from West Atlanta at first and I didn't know, you know what I'm saying? When I found out all that stuff, I was like, wow, you know what, <laughs> what I'm saying? So our vibe is, it's a trip because both from West Atlanta, both Aquarius, we both crazy as hell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, it, it, it's a trip. It's almost like being my twin brother, you know, but it's like my little brother. Well, do you find it, at all strange that he has so many exotic animals uh, at his house. That's very strange. Man. <laughs> I, I, got, I told B, I said, look, man, I got a problem with you and these damn animals. Look, every time, every time I do a video with this dude, he got to have me around the animals. Nah, he'll, he'll, do a, he'll do a shot with some puppies. You know what I'm saying? They're all climbing on. Okay, that's cute. he be like, Steve, go over there and say that to the animals. I got them two, them two big ass owls <laughs> right there looking at you while you playing. Are you crazy? What's wrong with you, dude? And then, I mean, I'm sorry, but I got to think. I got to get down my chin. So anyway, we over there doing uh, <laughs> you know, intentions. I'm getting ready to do a scene. They're going to put an alligator on the table. Nah. As soon as he said acting, the alligator said, <laughs> and I was like, First of all, why you don't have a little muzzle on him or something? You know what I'm saying? A little diamond muzzle or something. You don't put me here with this wild animal. So, look, I got a problem with being an animal. You know that, too. Oh, my God. You know I, mean, I do, man. I, do you have any animals at your home, or is it just like you, you don't fuck with animals at all? No, no, I do, but I don't have any animals right now. You know, I'm not going to go get exotic birds and stuff like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I have no problem with them. I have no problem with them, you know what I'm saying? But. Nah, that's not me. You know what I'm saying? If, if I do have a pet, probably a dog, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe a cat, something like that. You so, know. Yeah, not an alligator, not like an eagle, not not like sharks. Like, <laughs> what the hell do I want to do that for? <laughs> <laughs> um, what the hell made me want to? Look, and then one time, like, he always at his house putting this, um, this well, it's really kind of cool, though. He got the snake. They put the snake in the pool. That big ass anaconda, man. That dude crazy, man. Yo, I'm gonna be honest. I found I find nothing cool about an anaconda in a regular pool. <laughs> well, that's what that's what Big would do. He oh my god, them swimming though. You know what I mean? So, are you into like fishing like he is? Um, I like to fish, but nah, not not as much as he is. Not as much as you know. Big is is is. I don't know. He just. He's adventurous. He's way more adventurous than me. You know what I mean? You just want to smoke your weed, I, I sit around, <laughs> make music? Yeah, yeah. Man, I just want to smoke. Yeah, just smoke my weed, do my beat. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Sleepy, can you talk about, uh, obviously obviously, you, you grew up you know, seeing Jermaine on the side of that stage just like you were, um, but can you talk about what it felt like for Jermaine Dupri to take over the city of Atlanta and, and the impact that So So Def had, especially in the mid to late 90s? Um, it was definitely needed, man. Like, you know, I've been on Jermaine, you know what I'm saying? Very talented brother. 
And I remember when he first um, um, had crisscrossing, he let me hear it. And I, was, I, I knew then, I was like, oh my God, that jump record is ridiculous. I made him play it all day. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was well-deserved, man. He did so much for Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? Like, for one thing, I feel like Jermaine you know, brought Hollywood to Atlanta. You feel me? Yeah. Like him in Dallas. I, I feel like I feel like Dallas brought Hollywood and the rock scene to, well, not the full rock scene, but just more of an alternative scene to Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? They they definitely, you know, contribute to, to making this thing right. You know what I'm saying? So much love to Jermaine and, and, and everything he's done for Atlanta and Dallas, Dallas Austin. Well, yeah, and, and talk about Dallas Austin. What do you what do you think about, looking back, the impact of TLC? Yes, yes. Matter of fact, um, what's the trip is that Dallas Dallas had a lot to do with me wanting to do music too because um, I remember at the time he uh, he had a group called Hollow Place Monsters and he was working with uh, I can't remember the lady's name was in uh, Climax the group I can't yeah, remember yeah, yeah. but Joyce uh, yeah, uh, Fenderella Joyce, Joyce Fenderella that's her he, he was with her and uh, I remember when he first you know I seen him up at the skating ring or whatever and I remember they were looking for a group to dance behind them some of my homeboys and were dancing for them and he gave him a tape of the song that he did. And I heard, I was, I was blown away at this, this dude is way younger than me that was doing music like this. I'm like, wow, like he's <laughs> killing this. So, you know, I looked up to him for that. You know what I'm saying? So uh, um, Dallas had a lot to do with, you know, with organized noise, just like Jermaine did. You know, we, uh, we actually did our first job with Jermaine on, um, we did, uh, oh my God. <laughs> We did uh, the the girl group. We 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 okay. escape. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. We did escape's first album. We did a song called Tonight, and you know Jermaine looked out for us on that. So you know they, him and Dallas has always showed us love. And and just like Dallas and just like Jermaine, you are a music man. Music is in your blood. Music is who you are. Music is the only career you ever wanted to get into. And so, whether that's standing on the side of the stage, watching your father perform, whether that's going to the roller rink, whether that's being in the dungeon and being around all these artists, including Outkast, and seeing what they created from scratch, taking over the city of Atlanta, taking over the United States, and ending up on that stage in Los Angeles, Winning Grammys for Album of the Year for Speaker Box of Love Below. How gratifying is that? What does that mean to you all these years later? Um, I think that was a fantastic moment. It was beautiful, man. It, you know, it's what every artist actually dreams about, you know, when they feel like they made it. Um, even though they, they might have sold millions of records before, but that moment of, I guess, being recognized by everybody, um, you know, it's a big moment. So, you know, doing Grammys that year because that year man we did all of the uh, award shows it was just shows show at the show at the show and looking back on it man it was it was I the only thing I regret is I wasn't really ready for it because I couldn't appreciate it as much as I should have you know what I mean so well what do you mean by that like because you know, like it's not like you were like a 15 year old and you like went crazy with it 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 what do you mean when you say you weren't yeah, ready for I, it I was just, you know, I was just riding along, you know what I'm saying? In some, in some instances, I didn't know how to act. In some instances, I, you know, when you when you hit with success like that and it comes hard like that, sometimes it's kind of hard to handle. You can't, you got to figure out the balance of it. You know what I'm saying? You got to know, you know how to how to how to receive it, basically. Yeah. Can't think you're um, you can't think you're you're um, 
you know, just a music god, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like you're the only one or something, you know what I mean? You got to show respect, you got to, you know what I'm saying? You just, you have to, you have to respect it and love it for what it is and not think that you're supposed to have it. Mm. You work for it, you feel me? You've you've listened to the funkiest. You've played with the funkiest. Who is the funkiest person of them all? Ha. Um, George. Yeah. <laughs> I'm period. I mean, <laughs> George Clinton. I mean, I can't. It's no one more funkier than George Clinton. So when you guys period. sit down and and make more music, you know, on a regular basis, you and Big, and you have that funk inside you. What, you know, what what do you aim for in terms of uh, adding to the conversation? Uh, just, just, um, that's a good question. I don't know, I just, I just try to feel what Big's at and just try to ride that vibe, you know what I mean? You know, um, by me being older in the game, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, you know, I, I followed him on it, you know what I'm saying? I, of course, I know I still, you know, do things and, and, and or whatever, but you know, with this, and I, I feel like with this project, you know, what I'm saying I just really wanted to um, support B. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's like we we have been supposed to, you know, like done this project years ago, but yeah. it wouldn't work. And I, I was just, you know, acting a fool. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> it wouldn't work. So it's it's good that we're doing it now because you know. Of course, I'm way more focused, and I understand what it is, you know what I'm saying, and I enjoy it, so I appreciate it being now. Yeah, I mean, like, is it is it hard to... I know that this the, the album got announced, like, a year ago, and so is it hard to put music out at a very, you know, at a time when everybody's stuck inside, when you can't perform at festivals? Like, was there any thought about delaying the record? Was there any thought about how to make this album work best for now? Like, talk about the process of actually putting it out. Uh, well, we were all really, we just had to mix songs, but we were really almost done. So when the pandemic started, it was kind of like, it made everything stop, you know what I mean? Because we just, you know, but once we had to live through it, you know, I, I think I really started more focusing on just doing beats. And because I, I knew we'd come back to it when the time was right, so... You know, um, we just had to kind of wait, you know, because we didn't we didn't know how things were going to roll or, you know, which way things were going to go. So we just wanted to sit back for a second just to see, you know, what's going on and we'll move from there. Listen, Sleepy, it is an honor to speak with you. Congratulations on this new project with Big. Congratulations on a, a just superior legacy that uh, that lives on and, and puts you in that upper echelon of 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 funk musicians and and uh and funkiest people that i think we've ever seen on a screen or heard out of our headphones thank you for the work that you put in thanks for this uh time today and uh and take care of yourself thank you brother i appreciate it thanks everyone for listening to this new episode of a waste time with this the real jeff people want to find out more about us i'm eric with the curly hair you are jeff with the glasses together we are it's the real no apostrophe in spaces if people want to find out more about this podcast it's called the waste of time with it's the real Jeff, people want to find out more about what's going on with us. Where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com. But more importantly, you can go to patreon.com slash itsthereal. We are also on Spotify. All of our old episodes, all of our new ones, everything is on Spotify. Everything's also on Apple. Everything is even on Google. 
anywhere you listen to podcasts, including the one you're listening to right now. That's where we're at. And you can also find us on Twitter at It's The Real and Instagram at It's The Real. And please go to YouTube.com slash It's The Real, or as Tim Westwood would say, YouTube.com slash It's The Real. And subscribe, rate, comment, play some videos, enjoy them, and share them. Jeff, now is the time of the podcast where we love to shout people out. And today, who are we going to shout out? I want to shout out some people who tuned into our weekly Zoom call, which we had not done for a few weeks. Welcome back to us. Our irregularly scheduled programming. And shout out to the following people. Cell Walker. Haley Riggs. Annie Ma. Leslie Guam. Emily O'Connor. Michelle Greenwood. Abdul, our man from D.C. Matt Fastow. Brian Kraft. Daniel David. And C.N. Rondo. As always, guys, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. We'll see you guys next week. Great. Right.